Well, next week we will uh, give our attention to Psalm 27. Today we're in Psalm 26. And um, in a moment we will read Psalm 26. But before we do, uh, would you uh, join me as I go to the Lord in prayer? Father, as we open your word, would you open our hearts to hear from you, to receive your word for what it is, the words of life. Lord, would we open our hearts and open our minds that we might submit to what you have revealed in your word. Lord, if there's something we don't know, I pray that you would teach it to us. If there's something that we've forgotten, I pray that you would remind us. If there's something you want to make us, I pray that you would use your word to form us today. Lord, would our hearts be strengthened in your word. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's read together Psalm 26, and since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of the Lord Jesus himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? The Holy Spirit says of David, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord Without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, I bet you have struggled with assurance of salvation. Especially if you're like me and you first trusted in Christ at a young age. You've probably asked questions like, when I prayed that prayer, did I really mean it? Was I sincere? Did I really understand what I was doing? Am I really a Christian? Do I, do I, need, an, do I need to walk another aisle just to be sure? Or maybe you've been wandering, and maybe in big ways and small ways, maybe just in your heart you've, you've grown dull, you've, uh, 
not been as, as faithful to seek the Lord and, and to walk with him, and you've just thought, man, is this, was that really for real? Am I still a Christian? Do I need to rededicate my life to Christ just to kind of be safe, to make sure I'm in? Well, as David writes Psalm 26, he is looking for assurance. He's looking for the Lord to reassure him, to affirm that he belongs to the Lord. And in Psalm 26, David gives us an example to follow if we are seeking assurance that we belong to the Lord. Here's the main thing I want us to see in Psalm 26. You can be sure of God's saving love for you. You can be sure of God's saving love for you. As we dive into Psalm 26 and see this truth unfold, uh, we need to first observe something. David structured this psalm in such a way that the first half of the psalm mirrors the second half of the psalm. There's this kind of mirror image that's going on. And so what happens is the, the first three verses, verses 1 through 3, mirror the last two verses, verses 1 and 11. And then verses 4 and 5 mirror verses 9 and 10. And then verses 6 through 8 are right there in the middle. And so rather than walk through this psalm from beginning to end, uh, what we're going to do is start with the outside verses and then gradually move in toward the center of this psalm. And along the way, we're going to see three important aspects of assurance as we seek to be sure of God's steadfast, saving love toward us. We want to look at three important aspects of assurance that we see in Psalm 26. And uh, we're going to look at three of them. We're going to spend the most time on the first one, and it'll lay a foundation for where we're going. The first aspect of assurance I want us to consider today is assurance through obedience and trust. Assurance through obedience and trust. And we'll see this in verses 1 through 3 and verses 11 and 12. David begins Psalm 26 by asking Yahweh, the God of Israel, the great I am, the Lord, as uh, the word is, is, is listed here, he begins by asking Yahweh for assurance in verse 1. He says, vindicate me, O Lord, or Yahweh, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord and Yahweh without wavering. David is asking Yahweh, his God, to affirm that, that he's right with him, to affirm that he belongs to him. And David gives a reason why God should vindicate him. And that reason is that he obeys and trusts Yahweh. David says he has walked in integrity. And before you think that's a, a proud thing to say or that David's maybe delusional, actually God himself said about David that David walked in integrity. As God spoke to David's son Solomon uh, in 1 Kings 9.4, God called Solomon to walk uh, in this way. He says, walk as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules. And so it's not proud or delusional at all for David to just simply state the truth that he walked in integrity. And what we need to realize from that is integrity is not perfection. It's 
wholehearted devotion to the Lord. It's a life where all the pieces fit together, a life in which every area is directed toward pleasing God, a life where there's no inconsistency, where you're not one person one way and then another person another. There's no hypocrisy in life. doesn't mean that there's perfection. It just means that the whole life is directed toward God and directed toward pleasing Him. And David's integrity is evidence that he belongs to God. It's evidence that God should vindicate him to declare that he is in the right with God. David also says that he has trusted God without wavering. Jim Hamilton translates that phrase without wavering as I will not buckle. Paul describes in Colossians 1 how we once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but we've been reconciled through the death of Christ, and Christ will present those who belong to him holy and blameless before him. And then, but Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you continue without wavering, if you continue and, and don't buckle in your trust in the Lord, those who will be presented before Christ blameless above reproach are those who continue, who persevere in the faith, who are stable and steadfast, who don't buckle in their trust in Christ alone. Well, David goes on in verse 2 and he says, prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test my heart and my mind. He wants Yahweh to examine him deeply and to reveal what he's really made of. He's not trying to put up a front. He wants this to be the real deal. David has confidence that the Lord's proving, his testing, will go well for him because of the reason he gives in verse 3. He says in verse 2, prove me and try me. Verse 3, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Now, we saw that pair of words, steadfast love and faithfulness, already in the service today in Proverbs 3, our call to worship, but we also saw this last week with Psalm 25. Uh, in these, this pair of words, steadfast love and faithfulness, call to mind Exodus 34, 6, where the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Ultimately, David's confidence that Yahweh will vindicate him comes from Yahweh's commitment to him. David's integrity and his unwavering faith say more about God's commitment to him than about his commitment to God. Well, like I said, the first three verses of this psalm reflect the last two. Uh, Look down at verse 11 as we see David end this psalm by returning to the subject of his integrity. He says in verse 11, But as for me, I shall walk in integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. So David continues to commit to walk in integrity. He he commits to a life that evidences that he belongs to to Yahweh. And he makes that commitment. As he is making this commitment, he's asking God 
to do what he committed to do to David. So David is committing to Yahweh. I'm going to walk in integrity. And as he is making this commitment to Yahweh, he is asking Yahweh to do what he committed to do. That is to redeem David's life, to show him grace according to his promises. It will be the grace of God that will enable David to continue to walk in integrity. The last line of this psalm in verse 12 is a statement of confidence in this. He says, my foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. David is sure. He is sure that he is on steady footing. He has trusted in the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh as the basis for his confidence. He's living out the evidence of God's saving love in his life of integrity and faith. And he's so confident that he can experience the joy of worshiping Yahweh in the assembly of those who also trust and obey Yahweh. Well, let's consider what these verses teach us about assurance. Where should we look to to be reassured that we belong to God? Well, there's two biblical answers that Psalm 26 points us to. The first is the evidence of God's saving love, and the second is the basis of God's saving love. As we seek to be reassured that we belong to God, there's two places that we should look. The evidence of God's saving love and the basis of God's saving love. First, if we want to be reassured that we belong to God, we can look for evidence, the evidence of God's saving love in our life. David expected to be vindicated. He expected to be reassured because he walked in integrity. His integrity was evidence that he belonged to God. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. If you want to go deeper into what the Bible says about assurance of salvation and about knowing that you belong to the Lord, a great study would, for you would be to walk through the letter of 1 John. We're just going to look at a few passages from 1 John this morning. But again, what we see is the Bible teaches that if we're looking for assurance that we belong to God, one place we can look is the evidence of God's saving love in our life. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2 and verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him. By what? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John says you can know that you know God if you keep his commandments. The person who claims to know God but lives a lifestyle of disobedience to God 
is a liar. If not to others, maybe even to themselves. But the person who is walking in a lifestyle of godliness is giving evidence that they belong to God. And again, this is not about perfection. It's about a walk that resembles God. David also expected to be vindicated because he trusted God. Remember, he not only said, I I walk in integrity, but also I trust in the Lord without wavering. David's faith was evidence that he belonged to God, and John talks about this as well. Flip over to 1 John 5 and verse 1. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And uh, again, we read uh, before, uh, pointed us to Colossians 1, where Paul says that the one who will be presented blameless before Christ is the one who continues in the faith. Again, unwavering, stable, steadfast faith, not buckling. So we see this evidence of the walk of integrity, this evidence of keeping God's commands. Also, the evidence of trusting God, continuing in the faith. Well, another thing in Psalm 26 that David expressed was this desire to be in the assembly of God's people. Uh, The word assembly in Psalm 26 is ultimately where we get the New Testament concept of church. And another evidence that John points to that we belong to God is that we love the church. A love for the church is evidence that we belong to God. Uh, Look at 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So if you're asking the question, if you want to know if you belong to God, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. Are you wanting to honor God? Are you seeking to obey God's word? Are you growing more holy in your everyday life? Are you developing more and more habits of doing right and putting to death more and more habits of doing wrong? Is your life increasingly marked by patterns of obedience with moments of disobedience rather than patterns of disobedience with moments of obedience? Are you trusting God with your life? Are you continuing in the faith? Are you living in faith without wavering? Do you see in your life a love for other believers? Do you desire to gather with the church? Do you desire to help others follow Jesus? Well, if your answer is yes, you're seeing evidence that points to the fact that you belong to God. However, we always need to remember that a life of integrity and faith is evidence. It's just that. It is evidence of God's saving love. It's not the basis of God's saving love. Our trust in God, our obedience to God, they are the result of God's saving love in our life. They're not the cause of God's saving love 
in our life. And that leads us to the other place that we should look if we want to be reassured that we belong to God. When we want assurance, we can also look to the basis of God's saving love. Not only the evidence of God's saving love of our life, but the basis of God's saving love. And the basis of God's saving love is His commitment to love His people through the work of Jesus Christ. The basis of God's saving love is His commitment to love His people through the work of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. We saw in verse 3 of Psalm 26 that the basis of David's assurance ultimately came from the covenant-keeping love of God, his steadfast love and faithfulness. That was where his ultimate basis was for his confidence of being vindicated by God. Well, the basis of our assurance, the basis of God's love for us, the rock-solid foundation we can hope in is God's love toward those who are in Christ. Look at Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, sure, sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can be sure, like Paul said he was sure. We can be sure that we belong to God because of God's work, because of God's commitment, because what God has done. God is for his people. God elected his people. God gave up his son to die. God raised him up. God exalted him to his right hand to intercede for us. God justifies sinners and declares them righteous in Christ. God loves his people in Christ, and nothing can separate us from his love in Christ. So if you want to know that you belong to God, look to the work of Christ. Look to the cross as the basis of your assurance, the basis of God's saving love for you. Ask yourself, am I trusting in Christ's work alone to cause my salvation? And notice I said, am I trusting present tense? Because, again, if you're like me, you got saved at a young age, or even if it's just been a while before, uh, the fir- or since the first time that you trusted in Christ, it's easy for us to look for assurance of salvation by looking in the past, trying to 
make ourselves sure that we're a Christian by looking at what we did in the past or looking at a, a past event. We look back at that, that first moment we trusted in Christ, maybe as a child, and think, did I really mean it? Was I sincere? Did I understand what I was doing? But let me hear or you. <laughs> let me say this, and let me ask you to hear me say this, okay? Your salvation is not dependent on how sincere you were when you were a child. Your salvation is not dependent on how much you knew as a child. Your salvation is not dependent on whether you meant it or not. Your salvation is based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the question is not, did I trust him then? The question is, are you trusting him today? Where is your faith now? You may not know what the first day was that you were saved. The question is, what about today? Where is your faith now? Where is your confidence now? What are you looking to for assurance now? That's the question. And if your faith is in Christ alone and no one and nothing else, you can be sure that you are saved. You can be sure that you are in Christ, that you belong to him. You can be sure of his saving love for you. Because the basis of your salvation is not your commitment to God. The basis of your salvation is God's commitment to you in Christ. You can be sure of God's saving love toward you. We'll see these ideas of the evidence of God's saving love and the basis of God's saving love a little bit further as we walk through Psalm 26. And so let's uh, flip back to Psalm 26 and uh, turn our attention to where David goes next. We've looked at the outside verses of Psalm 26. Now we're going to take a step inward, the, the next inner circle. First, we saw David's assurance through obedience and trust. And second, we see assurance through separation. Assurance through separation. We see this in verses 4 and 5 and verses 9 and 10. As David goes on in Psalm 26, he, he gives further evidence of God's saving love in his life, further evidence that he belongs to God. Look at verses 4 and 5. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. So David specifically describes how he, he keeps his distance from those who are evil. Uh, this is reminiscent of Psalm 1.1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. David does not find a home with those who live in rebellion against Yahweh. He doesn't listen to them. He doesn't take their advice. He doesn't go along with the way that they live. He says he hates these evildoers. Now, we need to understand that this does not contradict Jesus' command to love our enemies. We've seen already in the Psalms that it's really important when we think about how the Bible uses the words hate and love that we distinguish between assessment and action. David here is giving an assessment by saying, I hate the assembly of evildoers. He's saying, I do not approve. When Jesus commanded us to love our enemies, he was commanding an 
action, not an assessment. He was saying, show your enemies love in action, like God shows his enemies love in action by causing the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. Jesus says, pray for them. It's an action. He says, uh, greet them. It's an action. Never are we told to feel affection for wickedness. Uh, We are to assess evil as evil, but we are to show love and action toward all. Well, David returns then uh, to evaluating himself in relation to the wicked in verses 9 and 10 as well. Look at those verses with me. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. David goes on to describe these evildoers he has in mind. He, he describes the, the bloodthirsty. So These are those who don't kill out of justice or in self-defense or even in retaliation. These are those who just want to do harm, those who are out for blood. He says they hatch evil schemes. He, he says, and their right hands are bribes. Their right hands are full of bribes. They'll they'll do anything, no matter how evil, as long as the price is right. David asks Yahweh, in in, in light of these evil that he sees around him, he asks Yahweh, don't sweep my soul away with them. Don't sweep my soul away with sinners like these. Again, he's asking for vindication. He's saying, "I, I don't belong to this group. I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in your steadfast love. I'm trusting in your faithfulness. Don't give me the punishment that they deserve. Don't lump me in with them. What we see in these verses is that another evidence of God's saving love is separation from the world, distinction from the world. And John describes this in 1 John as well. Uh, In fact, you can turn back there uh, if you'd like. 1 John chapter 2, we were just there. He describes this in multiple places, but in 1 John 2, where we just were, in verses 15 and 16, he also describes how an evidence of God's saving love is separation from the world. He says in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Someone who has been transformed by God's saving love will not look like the world. The world is enslaved to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. If you are looking like the world, it's evidence that there is worldliness in you. If you're living for the desires of the flesh, like John describes, if you're living for what feels good, you're living like the world. Or to put it in the language of Psalm 26, you're sitting with the wicked. The desires of the flesh, living for what feels good, could look like 
gluttony and overindulgence in food and drink. It looked like lust, living for sensual pleasure. It looked like living to get high on adrenaline from the next exciting adventure or experience. If you're living for the desires of the eyes, as John puts it, if you're living for what looks good, whether what looks good to you or what looks good to the rest of the world, you're living like the world. Living for what looks good, living for the desires of the eyes could look like living to look attractive to others, uh, living for entertainment, uh, living for what looks good even if it doesn't actually honor God, just as long as you keep up appearances. If you're living for the pride of life, like John describes, if, if you're living for what makes you seem superior to others, you're living like the world. That could look like living to acquire possessions, more and more toys. Uh, it could look like living to achieve a, a position of influence. It, it could look like living to be respected by those around you. All of these are the way that the world lives, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And it's really important that we understand that John says a Christian is not someone who does all those things all the time, but, you know, they prayed a prayer one time, so they're fine. That's not how he describes a Christian. It's how he describes someone who's not a Christian, is someone who lives in these things all the time. John says if a love for the world is in you, then the love of the Father is not in you. That was what he said in 1 John. If the love of the world is in you, the love of the Father is not in you. A real Christian finds the way of the world increasingly distasteful. The appetite for the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, the appetite for that grows smaller and smaller the more we walk with Christ. So look at the unbelievers around you, those who don't even profess to be Christians. Look at what they're putting their energy toward. Look at what they're finding pleasure in. And then look at your own life. If you see no difference except that maybe you come to church every once in a while, there is worldliness inside of you that God wants to save you from. There is grace to transform you from a life of worldliness and to a life of belonging to the Lord. The more we walk with Christ, the more we will grow a distaste for worldly pleasure and the more that our desires will be shaped and conformed to God's desires. Being separate from the world in our desires and actions in this life is evidence that we will be separated from the world in the final judgment. You know, in Psalm 26, David asks Yahweh not to sweep his soul away with sinners. He, he doesn't want to receive the wrath of God that sinners deserve. He wants not to receive that judgment. And those who trust in the steadfast love of God in Christ will not receive the judgment that sinners deserve. But just as true as that is also that those who trust in the steadfast love of God in Christ will show evidence in their lives that they don't belong to that assembly of evildoers who will receive God's judgment. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 
Look at verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, set apart, separated. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When Jesus saves us, he separates us from the world. And one of the ways we can be assured that he has separated us from the world as far as the judgment is concerned is that we walk in a way that is separated from the world in this life. We've seen in Psalm 26, we've seen in 1 Corinthians and 1 John this assurance through separation. We've seen two aspects now of assurance. We've seen assurance through obedience and trust, assurance through separation, And as we turn back to Psalm 26, I want to see one more aspect of assurance. We want assurance, right? If you've ever trusted in Christ, if you've ever made a decision to follow Jesus, you want to be sure that God loves you. You want to be sure that you belong to him. You want to be sure that you really are a believer. We want that assurance, But why? Why should we be assured of God's salvation? Why do we want to be sure, or why should we want to be assured of God's salvation? Just so we can be sure we'll avoid hell? So that we can be personally vindicated for our own reputation? Do we want to be assured for God's salvation just so we can feel good that we're a good person? Why should we want to be assured, vindicated? Why should we want to be sure that we belong to God and be sure that God's saving love is for us? I mean, what's the point of being sure? Well, that leads us to the final and third aspect of assurance that we see in Psalm 26, assurance for worship assurance for worship we've seen assurance through obedience and trust assurance through separation but lastly we see assurance for worship we've been making our way from the outside of the psalm in and we're going to look at the middle three verses verses six through eight david in verse six describes his delight in participating in the worship of yahweh look there he says i wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. Now, there was a a literal basin of water at a literal altar at the literal tabernacle where the priests were to wash their hands before ministering at the altar. Uh, But David isn't necessarily talking about literally washing his hands. It seems more likely that what David is saying here is that 
this desire to walk in integrity, this desire for moral purity that he's expressed in verses 1 through 5, that he expresses in verses 9 through 12, his desire is motivated by a desire to be able to participate in the worship of Yahweh. The altar uh, here that he describes also, we need to understand, was not just a place for sacrifices for atonement, um, but also sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, offerings of worship. And that seems to be what David has in mind here. He wants to go around the altar. He wants to offer praise and thanksgiving to God. And that's why he wants his hands to be innocent. That's why he wants to walk in integrity, because he wants to worship God. We can see more of this in verse 7 as he describes going around the altar. Verse 7, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. We saw already in verse 12 that David wants to bless Yahweh in the great assembly, the the church. David desires to tell everyone in the assembly of God's people how thankful he is for God and for all he's done. He, He wants to tell them about all his wondrous deeds. And if you know anything about David's life, just think of all that David could tell of God's victory, of God's protection, of God's deliverance. David wants to proclaim Yahweh's excellencies to Yahweh's people, and he wants to do it in Yahweh's presence. Because more than just being in the presence of the assembly, David desires to worship Yahweh in his presence. Look at verse 8. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Yahweh manifested his glory in the tabernacle in David's day. It was a place where the creator God dwelt with a people, his people. It, It was that place where the people of God would assemble, gather, and offer sacrifices and proclaim thanksgiving and tell of God's wondrous deeds. As we think about assurance of salvation, you know, in Christ, if we have trusted in him, we are saved. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. In Christ, we have eternal life. But all of that is just a means to an end. Forgiveness, eternal life, that's not a destination. It's a means to an end because ultimately we are saved to worship. The end for which we were saved is to worship God. We were created to worship God. This is what we were made for, to know God, to enjoy Him forever. And our sin separated us from God and it separated us from our purpose of living for God, worshiping God in His presence, enjoying Him for his glory. And when Christ redeems us, when Christ restores us and reconciles us to God, he brings us back to the purpose we were made for, worshiping God. Now, we will not experience the fullness of God's presence until Christ returns. We won't experience the fullness of God's glory until Christ returns. We won't gather with the full assembly of God's people until Christ returns. But I want you to think about this. Every time we gather 
as a local church, we get to experience a taste of what we were made for and what we were saved for. Turn with me one last place, 1 Peter 2. Look first at verses 4 and 5 of 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now look down at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy because of what Christ has done for us. He has made us, he's made the church the habitation of his house, as David says in Psalm 26. We, the church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where his glory dwells. And we, as the church, as a holy priesthood, get to proclaim thanksgiving. We get to tell of all His wondrous deeds, to proclaim His excellencies. We get to offer sacrifices, not on a physical altar, but offer spiritual sacrifices, which are accepted by God because of the work of Jesus. The great end of being assured that we belong to God is that we get to worship God as his people. So if you want to be sure of the Lord's saving love toward you, look at the evidence of salvation. Are you seeking to obey God? Are you trusting him? Do you love the church? Do you live a life separated from the world? Look even more at the basis of salvation. Look to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look at Christ's work, which alone is enough to save you. Look to God's love for you that you can never be separated from in Christ. But then don't lose sight of the purpose of salvation. God made us to be his people so that we would proclaim his excellencies. May we all walk in a life of worship that overflows from a heart that is assured of the steadfast love of God for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the assurance you give us in Christ that we can know that we belong to you, that we can be sure that nothing will separate us from your love. Lord, I pray that, Lord, even as we have looked at your word today and considered these truths, Lord, I pray that there are people in this room 
who have greater confidence in your love for them today than that are leaving with greater confidence than they walked in with. Lord, because your word is true, your word is clear, and Lord, what a joy it is to know that we can know you and that we can know that we know you. Lord, I pray that we would trust in Christ alone for salvation, that we would live in a life that bears the evidence of salvation, and Lord, that most of all, we would enjoy the purpose of our salvation to know you and to love you and to enjoy you and worship you forever. Lord, as we continue to worship you, would you be honored in our hearts, honored with our songs, honored with our prayers, Lord, honored as we offer ourselves to you as an offering of worship with your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.